today I'm here with PV Cannon, who is the CEO of 24-7, 24-7, actually, can you say the name for me? Yeah, 24-7 Customer. 24-7 Customer. Um, and this is, uh, PV runs um, call centers uh, in a number of different countries, and he was just telling me just before when we were talking that he's got around 6,000 seats around the world. So it's Fair, fair amount of people in call centers, and um, so we're going to talk today all about call centers and how the industry works and just uh, learn a little bit more about uh, this space. So, PV, welcome. Thank you for, for joining us, and it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me here. Maybe you can um, just start out and tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and, and, and where you came sure. from before we talk about your company. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, you know, my personal background is I grew up in India. I'm a chartered accountant by training, but uh, never worked as one. Um, I uh, joined the Tata Consultancy uh, in 1988, right out of finishing my uh, accounting uh, degree, and uh, joined as a programmer. And this was the days when offshore programming was just getting started. I mean, at that at that time, you know, TCS, as it's popularly known, had less than you know 500 employees, um, and today it's got close to 100,000 employees. So it gave me a chance to kind of understand offshoring, you know, uh, from the gr- you know, ground-level perspective because um, I was fortunate enough to be at DCS when offshore programming was taking off. By the time I immigrated to the U.S. in 91, uh, TCS had roughly about, I think, uh, a little over 3,000 employees. So it was pretty explosive growth when I was there, and that made quite an impact on me. I came to the U.S., uh, worked for a couple of uh, high-tech companies, and then started my first company in... 1995, <clears throat> this was the time the browser had come out and a lot of internet retail sites were you know, slowly springing up. Um, and uh, um, my uh, programming background was on customer service systems. You know, I had built customer service systems uh, for a while, so I thought, uh, what is the impact of the internet on customer service and uh, sales? And that's when I hit on the idea that you know, uh, in the future, service would be delivered through email and chat. And uh, chat could be also a very effective vehicle for uh, converting visitors into buyers. And so um, I started a company called Business Evolution, and uh, it became one of the leading providers to some of the top online retailers. And then in 1999, uh, the company got acquired by our competitor, Kana, uh, for $140 million, uh, uh, bucks, um, which wasn't a lot of money, incidentally, at that time, because all the deals were in billions of dollars. Uh, but it was real cash, so <laughs> it was a pretty good deal. So but unlike you, you I'm not... Re- why didn't you just return to <laughs> India and move to some little village and live like a king for the rest of your life? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I I tried that. I actually tried moving to the Caribbean for a couple of weeks, and then I realized uh, I have to go, you know, just bug people or do something. So I, I had to start another company. So Where in the Caribbean um, did you move to? No, I'm just kidding. I just went to the Atlantis for a couple of weeks for a holiday. Ah. So, but I thought I was going to take off for a few months. I was a general idea, so we just went with no return ticket. We just went and said we're going to stay here, and you know, and then you know, I think I got tired paying ten dollars for a bottle of Avion at the Atlantis. Probably that's what turned me away, you know. Um, so, in in when I was in, you know, uh, sitting there, uh, I started thinking about what my next venture could be, and this was, you know, uh, December 99, and one of the thoughts was kind of combining the two, um, you know, earlier experiences I had. One was the offshoring uh, with programming, and between 95 and 99, I had a chance to work with a lot of 
uh, call center managers, helping them implement chat and email, and they would be very frustrated just finding uh, people to staff. I mean, it was a big issue and continues to be a big issue in uh, US, U.S. call centers where, you know, the attrition rates are pretty high and finding people who can, you know, uh, write good English for email and chat was a big challenge, right? So at that time, it, the idea used to run in my head, you know, uh, if these people are based in India or some other country where they're educated in English and where this would be a very attractive employment opportunity as opposed to a, uh, you know, uh, uh, not so such an exciting career option in the U.S., it would be a good solution. So in 99 December, I was sitting in the Caribbean and I said, this could be the next company that I should launch. Uh, and so in January, I moved, you know, went to India, spent the next few months there setting up 24-7 customer in Bangalore and uh, uh, started off with Alta Vista as our first customer. We started doing their uh, customer service work by email. Uh, you know, and then got Shutterfly and a bunch of online companies, and that's how we got started. And today, you know, we have over 6,000 people worldwide. We have about 4,000 in India, a little over 1,000 in Philippines, and uh, roughly 1,000 in uh, spread across Central America and China. You get people in China, like they speak good enough English to do all this. No, we're doing um, uh, all the Asian languages out of China. So we're doing, um, you know, Mandarin, Cantonese, uh, Korean, Japanese, and, uh, you know, so it's the languages uh, that serves the Southeast Asia. Hmm. Can you, like, so the company, so you're working with about 6,000 agents. Um, can mm-hmm. you talk about, like, the annual revenues of the company? Sure. Uh, we're doing, uh, uh, the run rate right now is a little over $120 million, and uh, we're growing roughly about 50 to 60% year on year. So you'll be, you'll be a $200 million company within two to three years, will you? We'll probably do $200 million run rate by, you know, within 12 months. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in terms of um, one of the things that's really interesting then is the lead. So how much, how much of your business is commission sales and how much of mm-hmm. it is um, uh, customer service type work? That's right. So um, that's a good question. Um, what we do is we don't do, uh, you know, what I call uh, pure play commission sales. What we do is we get a base, um, um, you know, uh, amount, and then we obviously get uh, incentive payments. And we are far more focused on web-based sales than pure, uh, what I call, outbound telemarketing. Um, so the uh, the sales-based revenue for us is roughly about, 30 to 40 percent, and but it's all driven through the web or through inbound sales. And the value add we do, uh, Adrian, is uh, you know I think the first generation we used to obviously just put people on seats and you know train them well and you know provide a very motivating environment where they become very good in you know converting leads into sales. The last four years we've moved to um, uh, setting up a group that staffed with PhDs and statisticians. And what they do is they we take off, uh, you know, where Google leaves us. So a good idea is, you know, someone buys a bunch of Google keywords and drives traffic to a website. Uh, it's kind of a, a black box today. What happens from the time, you know, the visitor comes to the conversion? I mean, when I say black box, you know, obviously tools like Omniture and, and uh, a bunch of other tools can track every step the visitor takes on the website. But... Uh, there is nothing that tells you in real time that, you know, this person is more likely to buy. And more importantly, there's no actionable um, uh, intelligence available in a real-time basis. So what our group has done is 
develop uh, mathematical models that can predict that this visitor is likely to buy so that we can intervene in real time and, you know, in the form of probably a chat invitation or flashing a phone number so that someone can call and then we know that this uh, prospect is a very hot lead. And we use the information about what they have seen to make sure, you know, the right offer is made through the chat or through the phone. And that part of uh, our business is one of, you know, uh, a fast-growing business and, you know, accounts for about 30 to 40% of our revenue. So for customers such as, you know, uh, Overstock, uh, we pretty much, um, you know, do uh, all of their chat-based sales uh, with our agents, you know, based in India. Hmm. So um, we, in, in terms of the clients you get, do you, do you mm-hmm. ever do straight commission-based? I mean, for example, there's a lot of call centers out there that are just running Dish Network. Do you, do right, you take that right. sort of stuff up, or will you only right. work on deals where you have a direct relationship with the, the company? We only do direct relationship with the company. Uh, the only t- time we would do with intermediators where, you know, it's, it's kind of an authorized relationship and uh, there is, a, you know, a careful recurring revenue model that's in place. Uh, but as I said, we don't do straight commission-based uh, based, uh, sales at all. We don't do any of that. And what's the reason why you won't do that? The, the reason is, you know, first we have... Uh, um, you know, a, a better degree of control over, you know, uh, the type of work we do and there's, uh, you know, longevity to the relationships we take on, right? And uh, the second reason is obviously, you know, we've moved from a model of just putting people on seats uh, to a model of, you know, what is the value we are adding to the entire conversion process, as I said, you know, through the data analytics and so on. And if I have to make that investment, I need to make sure that that revenue is going to stick and be around, Right. So, you know, I'd rather go directly to, you know, uh, one of these providers. You know, and as I said, you know, we have no problem working with uh, marketing uh, agencies or people who do this for a living as long as they're signed on clients on a long-term basis and have a predictability. And they add, you know, value in form X and we add value in form Y and keep the end client happy. What The other, the other part we consider quite speculative and it's not a good fit for us. Meaning, meaning that it's unstable if you just have a, a generic relationship with a company. And they, That's right. I, I mean, That's I hear right. that Dish Network is making a lot of changes right now, which is affecting mm-hmm. a lot of call centers. They're, they're that changing exactly the parameters right. on, on the kind of sales. Have you, have you worked with that in the past and found problems no, with it, and no. that's why you're doing it this way? No, we've never uh, worked with Dish or you know, uh, contracts like that. It was a very conscious strategic choice at the very beginning. We just said, you know, uh, to the extent possible, let's work directly with clients and, you know, where there are very high-quality uh, intermediaries. We want to work with those that have, you know, long-standing relationship rather than, you know, anyone can bring me a lead and I'll pay them 100 bucks or whatever. That doesn't interest us because they have no clue when the strategy is going to change and what priority we stand in. And, and at any time they can change things and you don't have that any, any control over that. Whereas if That's you could, correct. It's, 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 much, it's obviously much more work. There's a higher barrier to entry to build yep. a trusted relationship with a big company. But if you That's are able correct. to get in and do that, then you've got a, a far stronger business long term. Absolutely. And would you guess, so, so would that be why you're at $120 million today compared to a lot of these other very small call centers that are around the world? That's correct, because, you know, I think we made the upfront investment in terms of time and commitment to build a solid business. And so, you know, if you look at the carryover, you know, and grow from 120 to uh, 180 or 200 next year, 
it's because I'm able to carry over almost 90 to 95 percent of my revenue. So I'm adding whatever ad sticks, right? Um, in 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 some of the other types of contracts, what happens is you're constantly replacing revenues that you're kind of losing because your mix of business is constantly changing. Now that could be a strategy for some people, but you know the way we have set up our uh, organization, it's more geared towards you know, client relationships, account management, you know, delivery of information, critical information on an hourly, daily basis to our clients, which, you know, requires a lot of investment up front, but it's, you know, far more sustainable. And we get aligned to their one-year, not even one year, let's start with their monthly, quarterly, yearly goals, and then then their three-year outlook of where their business is going. So we are kind of, you know, uh, lock in step with that, and and so the relationship, as you said, there's a bigger barrier to entry uh, for our competition, and therefore it's far more sticky for us. So you mentioned the, the, the higher cost of getting started. How did you get started? Did you just start the company yourself? Is it privately funded, or did you go that, out and get uh, financing? So it was started by uh, me and the other founder. You know, both of us. You know, as, as I explained earlier in the conversation, right? We sold the previous company, so. We used part of the proceeds to start the company. We, in uh, 2003, uh, Sequoia Capital became the uh, only outside investor. So they invested uh, you know, a bunch of money. And so essentially the company is now owned by the founders and Sequoia Capital. Who from Sequoia did the funding? Uh, Mike Moritz. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you've done pretty well. So, all right. Um, let me ask then, why um, why did you bother taking outside money? So, you know, um, I, um, what attracted uh, specifically Mike um, um, to 24-7 and for 24-7 to, you know, uh, approach Mike is um, he was one of the early founding investors in Flextronics, which, as we know today, is a $30 billion uh, largest outsourced manufacturing company, right? So that was one part of it. And two, uh, I always viewed uh, our business as not just pure, you know, call center fulfillment, but more of kind of helping our clients shape their sales and service strategy and play a very critical role in it, right? And so that was very appealing. And uh, we were also very, you know, we're very targeted on the online world. So as I said, you know, there's very lots of stuff that we do, which is complementary to what where Google leaves off and where other intermediaries leave off by providing leads, we are very active in the conversion process and analyzing the data, right? So for him, that, you know, seemed pretty logical place, you know, in the chain that he operates in. And for us, it's very valuable to kind of understand the market trends and have someone of his stature in on our board advising us. Uh, yeah, I mean, for some some of the guys here listening don't actually know anything about VC. They've kind of just bootstrapped their whole way. Um, Mike Moritz funded Google, um, and he's pretty much considered the number one VC in, I would say, I mean, Sequoia is considered the number one VC firm right That's now. Right. And, and right. Mike Moritz is the number one VC at Sequoia, so that would pretty much put him as the number one guy in the world in venture capital. <laughs> That's right. So I nice think, uh, yeah, thanks. Um, um, did you, I mean, did you need to take the money from him? Was it more of a strategic thing like saying, okay, we want this guy as an advisor and we need them, and so we'll, we'll, we'll allow him an investment and that'll help? Or, or did you actually like, no, we, we've got to get some cash because we are, burnt, we are right. run rates, you know, we're still, we're running out of cash? Right. So, you know, the, the answer is, uh, you know, uh, very heavily leaning towards the former. One, you know, um, I'm a big believer and this is my second company and, you know, uh, there are lessons from the first company that I've taken to heart, which is uh, 
uh, Kana did quite well because of the you know the pedigree of its investors, its board, and so on. It has a, a huge impact because you know you kind of surround yourself with a great board and great uh, founding team members, and you know pretty much that sets the tone for the quality of people that you attract from then on, right? So if I want to you know uh, hire a world class CFO, I want to hire a world class COO. Just like when I mentioned Mike Morris and you go, wow, you know, you must have done something right or your business should be, you know, doing something right for him to be on the board. That's the same logic that happens when I approach someone and say, you know, hey, uh, would you consider joining my company? They're going to ask, you know, who are your customers, who are your board, what's your, you know, business model and how do you execute, how do you make money? The story kind of adds up. So for, for me, it was more of, you know, I'm, I'm driven to make this a world-class company, so how do I get world-class people from all else to, you know, join the cause? So that was a big cause, you know. Um, the money definitely, you know, if I hadn't taken it in 2003, we'd have made it somewhere along the line because we, you know, you can, you've seen the growth that we have had in the last uh, seven years. Um, and, you know, somewhere capital would have been needed, but uh, this is what we call smart capital in the valley, right? It comes with the smarts, which is uh, as valuable as the money. This is something I've, I've not understood, and, and now I want to I want to take the, this opportunity to ask you because I've, I've had this sure. similar conversation with others, but not asked this question, which is mm-hmm. okay. So you and your partner sold your previous company to Canna for 150 million. Now I think mm-hmm. obviously you, you walked away with some percentage of that, but it must mm-hmm. be fairly sizable. You're already mm-hmm. putting into this a, a mm-hmm. pretty solid amount of money, but between right. the two of you, surely you could have come up with another amount of money, and then you Absolutely. could have got yourself a high-status person on the board of directors or the board of advisors giving them a, a far smaller amount of the company that, the, that, they, <laughs> that, that they would want to, want to make. Why did, you, why did you make the decision that you did? Right. Uh, it's a very good question. And, uh, you know, um, as I said, you know, um, who you get as an investor is, is, is as important as, you know, kind of the, you know, the the you know which business school you go to or whatever as you get started right later in life it becomes you know clearly unimportant right today if i'm going to go and solicit new customers you know chances are not many people go and say who funded you or you know whatever it is right because it's a track record they are looking at current reality and you know kind of betting on it right uh, and the analogy holds in the sense you know if I, if I came fresh out of business school the employer has only you know my current educational background to ask me on Right. After five or ten years, the fact that I went to Harvard or Stanford has no relevance if I've not done well professionally. Right. And in a similar fashion, when we started the company and when we were in the early stages, the fact that Sequoia is involved means you know it, it makes a lot more clients and uh, prospective you know uh, talent coming into the company far more comfortable. Why not um, put in that amount of money itself and and mm-hmm. get another and and then get uh, some. You know, really high status guy like um, somebody else. I mean, someone else out yep, there in the valley. Yep. You know, name any yep. one of them and give them one percent right. to be on your board of directors. Right. But I think you know, people kind of understand that as well, right? They kind of see that you know, uh, uh, Sequoia coming in, paying money uh, to be part of twenty four seven, and then you going and hiring a top gun and then putting them on the board. There is a big difference, right? And, you know, so the question is, you know, uh, it's a it's a good question. So you're, the question you're asking me is, you know, hey, is this a financially wise move for, you know, PV personally and the other founder, right? In other words, you're asking, is it worth the, the, the dilution that you take on? And the answer is absolutely yes. By the fact that 
people take it more seriously because Sequoia actually put money in rather than just someone that's who's on your board of directors. That is correct. That's correct. And it's also, you know, someone actually, you, you, most people are familiar with the venture process, right? You have to go and pitch to someone and make them believe in the cost, right? And uh, the, the more, uh, you know, uh, the more um, prestigious the firm is, like Sequoia, the harder it is to go, you know, get selected because, you know, it's it's kind of, that's why I call it the, the business school effect, right? You're, uh, you know, the idea is to really stand out and, uh, the you know, the firm has to believe in the execution capabilities of the team as well as be impressed with what's been accomplished so far, right? Yeah. Now, we are here to talk about your business, but I, I want to um, take advantage of this opportunity one more time, if I may, and ask mm-hmm. you, how did you get a hold of um, Mike Moritz from Sequoia? Like, how did that actually start? Like, you're sitting around one day and you're saying, okay, we want a high-status guy uh, to invest. How, how did you how did you get through to him? Right. So, you know, um, like um, most firms in the Valley, I think, um, you know, um, Sequoia does accept, invite, you know, you can go in and put your business plan to the website, but it does help if uh, you approach them through, you know, someone uh, they know and they've worked with in the past. In this case, it was Ram Shri Ram, uh, who's, uh, you know, uh, a very prominent angel investor and was one of the founding investors of Google as well. And uh, I've known Ram for several years, and uh, he became, uh, you know, uh, one of the early, uh, you know, founding investors of 24-7. And that's, a, you know, again, you know, we didn't need the money, but we needed someone like him to be part of the advisory group. I'm a big believer that you need to surround yourself with people with different backgrounds who can advise you from an arm's length uh, distance because you can take to them, you know, different sets of problems and just get their thoughts. So Ram came on board uh, almost day one, and then uh, he and I talked, and I said, you know, this is the profile of uh, investor who makes sense, and he made the introductions. And it was not just Sequoia, right? It was Kleiner, and it was a bunch of firms, and uh, I think the chemistry with uh, Sequoia and Mike was really strong, and that's how we ended up proceeding. So, But it was not like, you know, I just went, showed up at one pitch, and the next day he showed up with a check. It was, it was a relationship built over a period of months, and, you know, again, uh, we didn't need the money urgently, right? So we could kind of wait, and at the right time, you know, uh, the, the connection <laughs> That's a good position there. to be in. Exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> uh, that always helps. Very good. Well, congratulations on that. That's very impressive. Great, great. Thank you. All right. Um, so back to the call center. Um, so you talked uh, uh, for doing. You don't do straight. You do commission based, but it'll be commission. Mm-hmm. So you'll you'll insist on a base salary for your. Is that that's for your company, and then that's you correct. Then, that's uh, correct. A base to your employees, and then a commission mm-hmm. on top of that. Or how does that work? Right. So it's essentially you know, a base rate plus, you know, uh, the upside. And, and the re- reason for that is it's not so much that, you know, our model is back-to-back where we go to our agents and say, here's your base salary and we'll give you the same commission, whatever, right? The reason is uh, we are introducing, you know, this whole uh, layer that we call, you know, the advanced data modeling, right? So we don't believe that, you know, if leads come in and I just use my chance to convert is uh, as effective as actually having a basis for figuring out who you should be talking to or you should be chatting with, right? And that distinction is why we insist on a base because, you know, we need to fund that and make sure, and it's also a kind of a cost of entry. If someone approaches and says, you know, here's kind of how I sell and can you help me with staffing, you know, we don't want, you know, if they don't believe that it's going to be a real business, right? Then, you know, it's it, it, for me, a straight commission is almost like, very speculative, right? That means you don't believe that you may sell anything. So for us, just 
you know, recover the investments we make and for us to, you know, um, ensure that it's sticky, we, you know, all our contracts are structured as, you know, with a case and then, you know, we get a percentage of what we call incremental sales. So it's not just sales, right? So if a normal call center, you know, give them 100 leads and they convert 10, uh, we only take commission on the, the additional 5 or 10 that we produce, not on the first 10, right? And so there's a lot more value that we pack in. And the way we measure ourselves is, you know, for every dollar you spend with us, what, how much revenues are you generating, right? So depending on industry, industry, a dollar may result in $10 of revenue or $20 in revenue. And that, you know, real-time measurement and feedback is what makes it very attractive to, you know, our clients. Okay, so let me, let me ask this then. Um, yep. If, if, if you're saying a normal call center can, can, can convert 10 leads out of 100 and you'll come along and only take commission on the extra, on the extra five, how are, yep. you generating, how are you generating 50% more sales than everybody else? So that's where the uh, modeling comes in, right? So, you know, let's take uh, a telemarketing example. So, you know, in telemarketing, you would kind of produce a file and say, here's 100,000 people who have expressed some interest in the product. Go call them and close it, right? Mm-hmm. We would have, uh, you know, a, 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 what we call training the model. And in some of these industries, we already have our models, right? So we know, you know, depending on zip codes, you know, what is the likelihood that they would buy a product of this nature for 30 bucks versus $20? right? What is the success rate? What times of the day do people pick up their phones? And so, so fairly, you know, integrated with about 20 or 30 different variables, which, you know, keeps changing minute by minute, right? So we would take the data, train it, and then say, you know what, out of this 100,000 leads, I would not even bother calling this 20,000 people, right? Because it's a waste of time, you know, the property is so low that I'm going to ignore it, right? And then just concentrate on the higher, um, you know, probability deals, but spend more time, you know, focusing on them and making sure that offer is crafted to, you know, satisfy their needs. Um, and, and so that's how we get our you know, conversion. And on the website, we, you know, uh, take Omniture data and uh, all the other data that we track and then build a model that just says, you know, hey, this visitor looking for credit card or this uh, appliance or whatever they are looking at is really going to buy. What can we do to, you know, influence that sale, right? So you're using predictive modeling. Um, That's or right. scorecarding to figure out mm-hmm. where you should be spending your time on your leads. That's correct. Do you know you're the third business in two weeks that has told me this? That's great. You know, except that we're Actually, you know no, at I can, I can say I can say you're the fourth. I'll give you I'll give you four. So three other examples. Um, on the, one area where a lot of traffic's driven on the internet is, is uh, an area, uh, a, a space called CPA networks. Have you heard of the CPA networks? Mm-hmm. No. It's a it's a commission based sales for driving traffic. Those guys mm-hmm. have a huge amount of fraud going through right now. There's millions and millions mm-hmm. of dollars being lost every week on mm-hmm. fraud. And mm-hmm. so then they're using um, scorecarding, just like you are, to mm-hmm. um, weed out which are the bad customers. The That's next correct. example That's correct. is um, Q Interactive. So the interview mm-hmm. with Matt Wise, yep. Yep. they're using yep. scorecarding to figure out... Um, they're using scorecarding to figure out where the... High quality. Hold on, let me see if I got this straight. Whether high quality leads, which are, gosh, now I can't. And I just talked with him about it yesterday. I, I can't mm. remember. This, they have a. They have, he was talking about having a team of guys sitting and analyzing. I think it might have been just how they, how much they can pay for leads. Um, right, that's exactly so, right. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not getting it exactly as he defined. I have to go back and look at that. But it's something along those okay. lines. And then the okay. third one is 
Sync Partnership, they have a, a, a pay-per-click engine for, um, and they're, using, they're starting to use scorecarding for cleaning up um, pay-per-click feeds from mm. um, Miva and some of these other companies. Um, mm-hmm. and so Because Miva and Canoodle traditionally have had very low-quality data feeds, um, right. partners going in and, and, and f- cleaning up those feeds, again, using, using scorecarding. So that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's, it's interesting that this is coming up over and over and over. That's right. And I think it, this is the trend of the future. I think, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read this book called Super Crunchers by Ian Ayers. And essentially, his thesis is you know, every part of decision-making, and he gives this wide range of decisions, right, from, you know, what ads we see online to uh, public policy decisions where, you know, this kind of scorecarding and advanced data modeling is making a huge impact, right? Because we finally reached a stage, Adrian, where, you know, all this data is actually finally accessible, right? And the cost of computing has gone down. The cost of storage has gone down, right? So you now have the luxury to just load up everything that you can uh, catch and then actually store it before you just let go of this data, right? Now, you don't care. I mean, you know, there's oodles of uh, storage available. You just store it, and then you have superior computing power, and you have, you know, tools like SAS and other things that can go crunch it in, you know, literally within minutes, not, you know, days, right? So we've kind of entered this golden era where we can actually make sense of all this, you know, data that we are collecting, right? And that's why we are seeing this emergence in my view, right? It's kind of, you know, how globalization... Sorry. To do your predictive, to do your scorecarding, do you outsource mm-hmm. that to someone like Fair Isaac, or do you do it internally? We do it internally. So that's the uh, you know uh, you know staff of 50, 60 people that I told you is fully staffed with uh, PhDs and statisticians, and they do it. So, and we think that's kind of our sauce, right? So we won't outsource that. Okay, so let's say then you, you, you're cutting away the leads that are not likely to convert. But, I mean, some people would say, man, they're just throwing away leads. But you're saying that the probability is so low, it is, abs- it is absolutely worth it. And just yeah, not, yeah. Not even to put and a predictive dialer on the That's right. I mean, that's right. So, and we test the assumptions, Adrian. It's not like we just throw away the 20,000, right? So we would do what, what we call the you know, classic A-B testing. So you take 2,000 out of that and call and then show that we threw the right pile, right? And besides, you know, the, 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 comp, you know, the companies are free to take that whatever we discarded and give it to someone else. I mean, we're not saying you don't use it, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's probably great in a value chain that they can come to us, we, you know, convert at a much higher level, and whatever is left, they can give it to someone who does, does, does it for paper performance, right? And hopefully it's one of my competitors. It's hopefully one of my competitors, right? So we can drive them out of business even quicker. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so um, you're, you're going for the quality. Now, what, what does this mean in a, in a call center environment? I mean, how, how do you handle a quality lead differently? So, you know, uh, the, the agents are, you know, um, told very clearly that, you know, here's the probability, so, you know, don't come back with your old metrics where, you know, uh, you know, you, you know we whatever it is, 12 contacts in an hour, and then I convert, you know, uh, one per hour and so on should go out of the window. You know, we need a much, much higher level of performance. So they know that, you know, this is not like classic, you know, junk dialing, but you're actually dialing with some map behind it. So that definitely helps because they know that, you know, they're going to encounter more prospects who are going to be more interested in buying than, you know, just kind of wade through it looking for a gem, right? So that's what it, uh, the implication is for, you know, if I'm an agent on the phone talking to people, 
Right. So are your agents actually trained differently for these leads, or is it a case of the agents over time respond differently and therefore don't get worn out as quickly because the leads are higher and they can then... They, right, do you have right. the same turnover as other call centers, or is your turnover a lot lower? No, uh, it's a lot lower, and also, as I said, you know, it's not just uh, the phone. So there's a lot going on in chat, um, you know, uh, so that, that means, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, it's a lot more comfortable uh, chatting uh, rather than, you know, just calling and hanging up, calling, hanging up, right? So, um, and that's where the traffic is moving. I mean, we moved one, uh, one of the major credit card companies from almost a pure telemarketing strategy to they are now, you know, almost 90% driving it through the web, right? And that's where it's going. I think, you know, um, there are two, two schools emerging, right? One, you're generating leads online and then contacting by phones and then converting it, Right. That by its very nature, you know, those are people who said, call me, right? So they're less likely to hang up. And in that, you know, you can add some app and say, you know, yeah, they said call me, but, you know, they probably don't have the money to spend, so it's a waste of time, right? And then you can become more, far more efficient about it. But what's more interesting is while they're saying call me, you could just hold them right there and have them chat with an agent and just close it right there. Why divide it up into two steps, right? Sure, and I want to talk. I've got a lot of questions for you on the on the chat side yeah. of it, but I just yeah. um, I just want to finish up on the the call side because that's mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. So, I mean, what a typical call center turnover an agent. I don't think they last more than let's see more than six to twelve months, and then they burn. Right. What, what how long right. do your sales agents typically last? Our sales agents last typically 18 months, but we put them on a, in a growth track, right? Uh, so essentially they have, and that's where the, you know, the non-pure uh, commission model helps us because we, we have a, a longevity that we can rely on, right? So a program that we do for, say, an overstock has been going on for four years, and so month on month, the agent knows that, you know, his employment is not subject to, like, he suddenly doesn't go from selling A to selling B, he gets good at it and he starts making more money, right? Two, what we do is the, the agent has a career track, so at any point if they decide they really want to become a team lead, they want to, you know, go in operations up and become uh, a manager, there's a defined career path and, you know, education to support them to get there. Three is they can actually move into other areas if they show, you know, uh, an aptitude for data they can move into, you know, some of the elementary data modeling. And, you know, if they happen to be mapped wizards, then they can keep moving up, right? And then you have the entire, you know, they can become trainers. They can become, you know, more effective in uh, handling uh, quality. So we give them a whole set of options. So they don't see themselves as, you know, someone who then makes a bunch of money and then leaves. And then, you know, if you add the uncertainty factor of it, we have hundreds of campaigns floating around, then it, it makes life really frustrating. Right, and again, it's, so you, it's, you know, so you deal. You still do have a certain amount of like churn and burn in your business, where guys do. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, for us, possible? right? For us, the biggest churn is uh, Adrian is in the first ninety days when someone comes in and says, "You know what? This is not the job I signed up for." Right? Or I really don't like this. I mean, this is not really me. Uh, for us, after ninety days, the the churn really reduces to you know less than ten percent annualized. Right. So if I take 100, I lose about maybe 20 of them within the first 30 to 60 days, right? But once they cross the 90-day mark, whoever is left, less than 10% of that will leave. Hmm. Okay, so you're managing, um, so six, that's 6,000 agents. What's the total employees? 
We have, uh, you know, the, the, the metrics are we have 6,200 employees as of today and 6,000 seats. So we are not, you know, fully optimized yet because we keep adding capacity in new regions as we are developing, right? So you have, a, you have 200 non, 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 uh, Agents, two hundred people that are actually like running the company. And then the rest. Yeah, you know, it's more than that, right? It's um, uh, we are only using probably five thousand four hundred seats or so for the six thousand two hundred employees we have, because a lot of it is sitting empty because we have built it in the last you know ninety days, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how we manage growth because you can't build infrastructure overnight. Hmm. Okay, um, and so of those, how many are based in the U.S. versus international? Um, there's zero in the U.S. So, as I said, 4,000 in India and uh, a little over 1,000 in Philippines and, uh, you know, about 1,200 divided between Central America and, you know, China. We have, what, close to 100 people in uh, uh, Belfast and Northern Ireland. So zero meaning just you and your partner in the U.S.? Or is he even in offshore? Uh, no, we, we have about uh, 25 uh, employees in the U.S., which is, you know, the sales team, account management, uh, some of the technology, uh, you know, uh, staff, because we maintain switches and dialers and all that good stuff, right? So that's all sitting here in uh, Redwood City and the East Coast. And uh, and we have about um, half a dozen employees in the U.K. Um, almost a third of our revenues come from the U.K. And uh, about, um, um, you know, 50% from the U.S., a third in the U.K., and the rest from Australia and Canada. Right. So how do you manage all those guys? I mean, you've got a very distributed environment. You've got to make sure they all keep performing all the time. I mean, that, that's got to require a fair amount of staying in touch with everyone. How, how do you do that? Right. So we anchor around uh, clients. Uh, so they're usually a, a VP level for all the large clients, which contribute more than in a year for us. And uh, they, they're the single point of contact for our client, right? They essentially run, from my perspective, they run the P&L. But from the client's perspective, they are responsible for the performance, right, and making sure that day on day we deliver on what we promise. We have a chief operating officer that's a global role, and uh, she's, uh, you know, she's American, but now she lives in India, and she, you know, basically has all the country heads reporting into her, and underneath the country heads are the VPs who actually run the client. So that's kind of a, you know, fairly simple org structure, which is easy for our clients because we don't have all these matrices running around, you know. Each client has their own dedicated team with their HR team, trainers, quality, everything packaged in, so we can hold that unit fully accountable. All right. I want to ask a couple of questions um, that my call centers uh, gave Mm -hmm. me to to ask you. Um, Sure. uh, Do you buy call centers? Um, that's not a preferred model, but the answer is yes if it's a new location that I'm looking at. For example, you know, this year we're looking at other countries in Central and South America, so that would be very attractive uh, if we find uh, call centers doing, you know, uh, really interesting work and has got a, you know, good set of clients. So but if I'm not like looking, I'm, I'm not looking to buy anything in India, right? So, right. One sorry, go ahead. seats in the Philippines. Then the other mm-hmm. has 80 in the Dominican Republic. Are either of those interesting too? Uh, the, the second one is definitely interesting. The Philippines, you know, we have, uh, you know, uh, is it in Makati or? Uh, in Manila. So if it's in Makati, that would be interesting. But if it's elsewhere, you know, um, 
It's in it's in yeah. Manila. Manila, okay. Then then it's definitely an interesting one. Oh, in, in Manila, in Manila is interesting for you. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, okay. uh, we we want to add capacity there fast. So anything that can help us accelerate, uh, that would be very helpful. Okay, I can put you in touch with both those guys. Yeah. Um, okay, so then here's some here's some more questions. Um, mm-hmm. When I run two shifts on an outbound sales process, the morning shift seems to get more sales, even though the night shift has more customer contacts. I have heard many reports from other small call centers that it is also very difficult to get more than one productive shift going in a day, and I've also heard that many successful call centers have decided to only work one shift. How do you see it? (laughs) Um, That's that's very interesting, because a lot of our clients, when they come to us, uh, and, you know, they all have their, um, what I call, favorite theories, right, which is along the lines of what what the question is, you know. Sure, you know, some clients will come to us and say, okay, I want you to call between 10 and 12 and then 3 and 5 and then 5 and 7 or whatever that number, magic numbers are. And, uh, you know, for us, we drive it by data, as I told you, right? So our dialers are loaded based on the rules that are, you know, analytics tell us not based on, you know, uh, what people think and receive wisdom and so on. So what we find is, you know, there usually we end up uh, running it in two splits uh, within the same day, but it need not be eight-hour shifts. So you will break it up into two, but one could be a seven-hour yeah, yeah. shift and one could be yeah, a four-hour yeah. shift based around yeah. the day. And, and, and it could vary day by day, so, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be uniform, right? Hmm. Okay. Um Next question. Many of my best sales agents seem to produce very well for between 6 and 12 months, after which they mm-hmm. more or less burn out and become bored and ineffective rather than seasoned and experienced. Is there a mm-hmm. way to save these people, or is it, is it better just to let them go and get someone fresh on the sales floor? And I guess you kind of answered this by saying you put them into lots of different positions within the That is right. That is right. And I think a lot of them get a lot of joy by teaching other people how to sell. I mean, that's uh, you know, if they, they share that characteristic, then... They're very suited to become coaches. They don't even have to become team leads, right? They can take ownership for three or four other agents in the team and bring their performance up, and they get paid something for that, right? So they're mentally, you know, doing something different than just kind of taking phone calls, right? Hmm. So you have, you have um, to constantly, you know, figure out how to keep them engaged and challenged so that there's something new every week and every month. Right. And then, do you know, are there people out there that are successfully cold calling or just bulk dialing, um, you know, like phone page leads, or, or, or are the successful call centers only doing um, the kind of work you're doing? You know, we, we, I'm not too aware of that other side of the industry, so I, I wouldn't want to, you know, kind of give an answer that I'm not expert on. Uh, the, the general shift for the, you know, more established players like us is, you know, more kind of, as it's a predictable revenue, long-term relationships kinds of things. I'm not, I'm not too familiar with the cold calling side of the world. Yeah, no, I think you made a smart decision and all that. Um, okay, so you want, you want to talk about chat. Do you want to tell us a little bit how your chat works and, 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 and why it's good? I mean, the one thing that is out there, which I don't know is necessarily mm-hmm. a great thing or not, but it's certainly cheap, is um, chat systems that imply that they're, they're like a, call themselves like a virtual chat where mm-hmm. it's actually basically artificial intelligence that's leading yep, the chat yep. in the beginning and handling the first part and then handing off to a live agent if it becomes complicated. Are you doing that kind mm-hmm. of stuff? What do you think of that and how does what you do on a, on a, on a cost basis compare to it? Right. 
So, you know, uh, as I said, we, um, we structure the entire chat um, like a sales program, right? So we measure, you know, for every dollar they spend with us, what is the efficiency they're getting out of it? So that takes away the question, you know, either I, whether I use technology or, or I use people, as long as I'm delivering results, you know, consistently, um, our clients are happy, you know. They, they don't, you know, it's the same as saying, what if I improve the productivity of my agent, right? Uh, I make them type faster or whatever. I mean, our customers really don't want to get into that because they hold us accountable for sales. Um, um, in terms of the the platform itself, as I said, we work with other companies. So, you know, we use most of the popular vendors of their selling chat systems. What we really, where we play in is uh, the, the mathematical modeling and making sure we understand visitor behavior and conversions and then, you know, increase that conversion and, and get paid on that incremental lift, right? And, just to, uh, just to and backtrack onto the, onto the chat side of it, if, mm-hmm. if someone's using an automated chat service, which, you know, comes up mm-hmm. and says, hi, I'm Susan, and you know, right, right. help you, and the person says, I'm right. looking for the FAQ, and then it's, it's mm-hmm. using artificial intelligence, says, okay, the FAQ is here, here's the link, and, you know, I hope that helps you. Right. I mean, that, that, that system can handle a million people simultaneously for virtually no cost. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas you've got to have people sitting there handling that if you're using people. How, how do you, how, I mean, you talk about productivity, but there's a, a you know there's a, a thousand to one cost difference or a, a larger right, on right, kind of thing. Right. right. So you know that, that's why I said you know the the for us the the optimal way we introduce uh, the chat is not that you know I'm I'm kind of saying that the other system is not effective, right? Uh, we'd be happy if a client has that system to layer ourselves on top of it. You know, we have no issues with that. But the point I'm making is we do not put a chat button on every page. It's not that the client comes and clicks on chat and then asks some random questions and then goes off, right? So in the same situation, we target who's likely to buy, and then, you know, they get an invitation to say, hey, if if you have any questions at any time, just click here. There's a live agent standing by, right? And most of the time when we look at the questions, those are not the where is my FAQ kind of questions, right? It's real sales assistance where you are using, you know, your persuasion skills to sell. And that's where, you know, I think human beings are really good at. So we haven't, uh, you know, examined the situation where, you know, all these questions are like very simple. Does this come in green or whatever, which, you know, hopefully the web page is smart enough to say that rather than a human being having to read off that web page to that person, right? So mostly it is more complex questions, more comparison type questions, and as I said, it's targeted. All right. Okay. Um, anything else you want to tell us about uh, how, how chat works? And, and like, I mean, why should someone consider that? I, I think it's, you know, you, you made the point that, you know, um, many, many, um, uh, the, the, the trend that you're seeing is, you know, this whole uh, scorecarding, you know, the data uh, modeling, you know, being smart about what to do rather than just blindly doing it. I, I just think it's a trend uh, that's increasingly, you know, becoming, uh, you know, prevalent, not just in selling or online selling or online marketing. It's just, you know, becoming part of everything that we do in life. So uh, what we are saying is, you know, you can make your online marketing more effective if you start, you know, building models and doing that. And we come as a service packaged in a box. So, you know, we make it very easy for, uh, you know, your audience to do this. So that's all I would like to add. Um, in general, I mean, so you're talking about this across all stuff. Like, let's say someone's working with a call center somewhere today, um, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, that, why, why should they consider switching to you? 
I think we'll give you the free sales with lower cost. That's what I'm talking about, right? If they have 100 bodies doing it, maybe we'll only use 50 to achieve the same sales or alternatively use 100 to double the sales, right? Which is kind of what we're delivering for our clients, right? And so maybe like the, the, the way you're working then is you're using intelligent math to, to drive um, higher exactly. quality sales. Exactly. The way I would put it is suppose you were at Nordstrom and you know, a, a thousand people are walking in. You're not the dumb sales guy who's trying to sell to every guy walking in, right? You kind of you know pick the person who you think by, of course, in Nordstrom they use instinct or they look at your shoes to figure out whether you can afford what you're trying to buy. But, uh, you know, here we are using all the data that's available to kind of say, you know, yep, this person is very likely to buy what they're doing based on, you know, the hundreds of instances of what others have done, right? Hmm. Very cool. Um, Is there anything that we should talk about that we have not? No, I think uh, this was pretty comprehensive. I think we covered most of the topics under the sun. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. Great. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me.